You are all weirdos. Weird science is the revolution. Weird science is the revolution. Welcome, all you weirdos, new Chandelar immigrants, and everyone happy someone remember that Forge exists. It is time for your 76th episode of the Weird Dose of X, the mutant member of your Weird Science family. I am your host, Jason, broadcasting from the Wrong Turn Studio perched high atop stately Weird Science Tower, and here with me from his studio, constructed entirely from stolen Mysterium and dis- discarded Starbucks cups, is my man Ruben. Hey, Ruben, how the heck are you today? Pretty good. Well, we all know that's fake, because if you're in Seattle, you don't drink Starbucks. To me, all all coffee places are Starbucks. It's like, uh, yes. what was that movie where all all uh, restaurants are Taco Bell? Wasn't there was some yeah. science fiction movie about that? Maybe. Basically, they're all, they're all Starbucks to me. Of course, that'll get me expelled from Rhode Island and New England in general, but... Uh, Oh, well, yeah. we'll take that risk. We we drink Starbucks when we are out of the city, but when we're in the city, we all have our, like, oh, one of the store. Yes. Yeah. That's the way it works. Gotcha, gotcha. Oh, well. Uh, so, uh, now that we've all got our caffeine taken care of, uh, I'm, I'm getting pretty excited that we're getting closer and closer to uh, Fothox Rotpox time, because... Uh, First off, I guess I'm getting excited that Christmas is getting closer, although my, my uh, shopping has not really kicked into gear quite yet. I should probably take care of that. And right after Christmas, well, that's when we're in the new year. And when we're in the new year, that means that we're on to the end of our X-Men era. The end of I Krakoa. get like, super anxiety around the holiday season. Like Gift giving is one of the things I hate the most. I'm just not good at it. And I always spend like hundreds of hours thinking about what to get. And it never kind of lands right but this year i'm actually Ooh. done so that's nice pretty, pretty good. so you're getting everyone one of those cars with a giant bow on it like in the tv commercials just one-stop <laughs> shopping your local Audi no, dealership my, my wife, uh, i guess finally took pity on me after after 10 years of marriage she and gave you finally, yeah she's basically like hey there's this artist i like that's at the craft fair go go buy something from them so <laughs> thank you thank you uh loving wife Yes, wives, spouses out there, have 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 some pity on us. We we're doing our best. We we just don't always know what to do. So you know, throws a bone. That was a public service announcement. And now I guess it's time to go on to the books. And the books today are Alpha Flight number five of five, Invincible Iron Man number thirteen, and X Men number twenty nine. So three books and uh, spoiler, they're all better than last week. At least in my opinion. So, hey, that's good. I, I think we had some, some fun last week, but uh, good that the I books are I did better. not have any fun. I had fun this week. So, okay. Last week sucked, but this week is okay. I'm back. You know, there was a week where you read these books and you're just like, why am I doing this every week? And that was that was me oh, last no. week. But these <laughs> books are these books are good. I was like, oh, yeah, I actually like X-Men <laughs> and X-Men adjacent comics when they're not just hot garbage. Sweet. So speaking of X-Men adjacent comics, let's go on to our first book, which is Alpha Flight number 5 of 5, Divided We Stand, Part 5. Written by Canadian Ed Brisson, art by, possibly Canadian for all I know, Scott Godleski with David Cutler, colors by Matt Miller, letters by Travis Lanham, and design by Tom Muller with Jay Bowen. So yeah, I found this to be a pretty satisfying conclusion to our story. It resolves... Yeah, this was, go ahead. in my opinion, definitely the best. Uh, ending of or I shouldn't say the best ending ever but a much better ending than I was expecting and after reading this I will begrudgingly say okay I see why people might like Alpha Flight. It seems rich wow. right? I feel like I didn't get enough of the feels but there were a lot of things that were being done here so kudos to person. 
Yeah, I like the way that it resolved enough, right? We feel, you can see this is a, this is a full beginning, middle, ending of a story here. But there's also these other questions left unresolved that are, you know, floating off into the future where we, we want to see what happens. I, I like that kind of comic book writing where you don't feel cheated, but you also feel like there's still more to explore. Well, I have a question for you. It's totally derailed this, but I, I guess the answer is yes. But has has Fang Dakin always been Canadian? Is that just well known or is it just he's in here because he's related? To well, his dad is Canadian. Yeah. So maybe it's just like, you know. I'm half Syrian, even though I've never actually been anywhere near the Middle East. Got it. Okay. Works for me. That's my guess. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I don't think Ed Brisson's going to get another shot at uh, Alpha Flight anytime all that soon. I mean, it's Alpha Flight. It comes out like once every 10 years. I don't really read the uh, the sales charts, but I, I can't imagine this was a huge seller. But it, it seems like at least some of these characters will be turning up elsewhere pretty soon. So, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. So, as we ended last issue... All attention was turned towards Krakoa North, that secret base Alpha Flight was using to hide mutants out of sight of their Department H bosses. I mean, it, it was a secret up until a mutant named Argent, a civilian named Laurent Bavada, decided he'd had enough of the whole hated and feared lifestyle, decided to take himself on a Canadian walkabout. And he didn't close the door behind him. Uh, and here I thought Canadians were supposed to be polite. The security breach leads Department H's box sentinels right to Krakoa North's doorstep with no one there to protect them but uh, Kyle. Now, Kyle seems like a nice enough guy, but if I if my life were on the line versus giant Canadian robots, K Kyle would not be the first guy I'd pick to defend, you know? I want to comment on this first page really quick. So at the beginning of the series, we were told these superior Canadian sentinels were not as destructive, and they were sized so that they could enter buildings without creating immense property right. damage. And here we are, page one, they're just flying around blasting the hell out of the building for no, <laughs> apparently no reason. Like, the whole team is, you know, basically all the, the refugee mutants are outside, and the Sentinels are still just I wrecking. think maybe they have a, a switch, and they, they used to be in curling mode, but now they're in <laughs> hockey mode. So I okay. think those are the two ways Canadian robots operate. I see. So I think once once uh, Department H, uh, what's her name, Doiron said, "Oh, we're we're going after these yeah. this base we really hate." Yeah, we're, mm -hmm. we're going to hockey mode. Got it. So now both halves of Alpha Flight, the official human half and the secret mutant half, they're both speeding back to base to defend it. Uh, Guardian tries briefly to keep up the ruse that he, Puck, Shaman, and Snowbird, oh, we're just loyal civil servants, but Director Doiron orders them to stay away. Guardian knows that. The jig is up and gone, and you know they're out of the closet here. They, they they're gonna have to put their cards on the table, and yeah, no more collecting that uh, government paycheck. I appreciate the way Briston played this too, where Director Doyron was not a dope, right? Like it seemed very tenuous. Like she seemed to be onto him pretty early in the series, but was kind of willing to give him an opportunity to prove that he was loyal with Department H. But I appreciate that she's like, okay, yeah, this is. Yes, <laughs> and I also appreciate that Guardians like, yeah, this is not fooling anybody. Let's just cut the channel. Yeah, four four issues was just about as long as you could string that out without it getting silly. So now we get a a data page of text messages between Guardian and a secret ally, uh, and we learn that an Alpha Flight squadron jet has become available to ferry those rescued mutants off the Chandelar. Uh, if those mutants can get themselves to the Alpha Flight space station, which seems pretty difficult at the moment, given how all these flying Canadian government hockey robots are, you know, wrecking house. But if they can get there, the rest of the journey should be fine. And this is the first part where, as a 
non you know steeped alpha flight fan i kind of was like i i guess i'll just accept there's a space station here <laughs> yes that's been a thing for a while yeah I mean, the purpose of it changes for a while captain marvel was kind of in charge of the space station. So with this, this space station has been used for various things uh, throughout the course of kind of Marvel history. But it's for Canada? Like it's Canadian-run kind of space station? Or is it like an international It's definitely thing? connected to Alpha Flight. Okay. And yeah, Alpha Flight sometimes seems to have more of an international, sometimes more of a just purely Canadian function. Okay. But it's definitely an Alpha Flight thing. All right. So it looks like... Sorry, another question. Are there more than one? Because they talked about an old base Oh, now. Now you're getting a little deeper into Alpha Flight history okay. than I know. I, yeah, I, know I they, didn't know. I didn't know if there was like a current one or – It was involved Ooh. in like the Ultimates for a while, that same space station, I think. Mm-hmm. And you look, any space station in the Marvel Universe, if it's been around for a couple decades, it's going to get blown up once or twice. Yeah. Wasn't Brand in charge of it for a little bit? I do recall Probably. that during one of the – like it was like maybe Empire, they, they talked about you know not being part of Alpha Flight anymore. Yeah, the same station that Brand was and on. Guy Rich, I guess, was running it. Well, he's not Canadian, so I'm really confused. <laughs> that must have been during the international era. Oh, well. It, it, yeah, maybe I'm getting confused with multiple space, space stations, but definitely Alpha Flight has had the Alpha Flight space station. So it looks like the rescued mutants are going to be rounded up and, and hauled off before help can arrive, but then help arrives uh, in the form of Lawrence, who was the proximate cause of Department H finding Krakoa North in the first place. So he gets his little uh, redemption here. He returns and uses his liquid metal powers to take out one Canadian box sentinel. <laughs> Sadly, that's his final heroic act as Roger Box Jr., uh, who's controlling all these things. He uses another box sentinel to give Laurent a full-on zap-zap to the chest, murdering him to death. Uh, so I, I guess that answers the question of whether Roger was secretly in league with the rest of his teammates. You know, I think he sent me like a like a comment from House of Astonish talking about his history and of, of the senior, uh, Box senior and the junior and how this kind of all plays into like him basically making the same mistakes that his father did and how it's like a tragic Yeah, there's, there's a family history there. So his dad, obviously, uh, Roger Box Sr., who was one of the kind of original or at least really, really early Alpha Flight guys, he was killed by a mutant. That mutant was Lionel Jeffries, brother of Madison Jeffries, who we last saw as part of Sabretooth's crew over in those Sabretooth miniseries, and we'll probably come back in that's the The Sabretooth War. Yeah. Now Lionel Jeffries was a doctor who was treating Roger Sr., but that medical treatment had a secret hidden evil component that ended up taking over and killing Roger Sr. So when Roger Jr. hears about at least this is the story I'm telling in my head, when Roger Jr. hears about these magical mutant medications that, oh no, they have a secret backdoor that kills people, that is going to, you know, ring true in his head just due to his family history. So it kind of makes sense that he would be anti-mutant. No, that's great. I think it's a, I think it's good. This is all stuff that's like over my head, right? Because of my lack of Alpha Flight knowledge. But reading that, I was like, okay, I can see this. And it probably really resonated with, you know, the one person that loves Alpha Flight. Well, that that is the great part of having this giant shared universe that goes on for decades, right? Sometimes it's a real pain in the ass and, you know, continuity people are saying, oh, that doesn't match up, that doesn't match up. Oh, that space station was already blown up in 18 issues ago. But when you can just, you know, scratch the surface of a character like this and go, oh, yeah, there's this this whole backstory that doesn't need to necessarily get on the page, but it really gives it some extra texture when you look into it. So that's that's what the big two can do that all the other comic companies just can't because they don't have these decades of, of history. So uh, Laurel gets zapped by Roger Jr. And we also see that Roger Jr. is 
he's not, you know, super gung-ho and happy about killing this kid, right? He's conflicted. He wants to impress his boss. He thinks he's doing the right thing, but he's kind of hesitating. This doesn't feel like this is really what he signed up for. He kind of ended up in over his head. And I thought that was some good characterization, too. Yeah. He doesn't get a whole lot of panel time, but he feels like this three-dimensional character. So really well well done there by uh, by Ed Brisson. It also helps me understand how these, you know, very powerful robots occasionally were just stomped pretty easily. And then now we see them kicking butt. I kind of, it makes me think that during this whole series, right, he was really unsure, like, how much power to unleash. For sure. And yeah, these Sentinels are, one way, way they're different from the other Sentinels, like, I don't know, the American or the Orcus Sentinels, is just they don't seem to have anything in the way of being able to operate on their own, right? It's all, they're just remote controlled by this one guy. So if there's a bunch mm-hmm. of Sentinels all out there at the same time, he's only got so much attention. So mm-hmm. it, it seems they're not very autonomous, I guess is the word I'm looking for. So Laurel only managed to take out that single box sentinel before getting killed, but that was enough time, enough of a delay for both halves of the Alpha Flight to arrive, the mutants and the non-mutants. And yeah, this this fight was pretty cool too. I like seeing Snowbird and Abominable Snowman form, just ripping box sentinels to bits. That was cool. Uh, she's the one who can transform into any Canadian animal. I guess the Abominable Snowman is is one of those, so that's what she went for. Uh, a little awkward, I thought, to have Guardian and North Star just shown having this like extended casual conversation when they should have been pitching into the battle. Did, did you yeah. think that felt a little off? Yeah, yeah. The timing was a bit bizarre, but we see that a lot in comics. I kind of let it go sometimes. Yeah, I, I think I would have excused it more if they just show them fighting and conversing, which is silly in its own way, right? Like if you're busy fighting, you can't have this this conversation with your buddy. You know, yeah. give them little radios or something. Yeah. It just seemed silly that their friends are just right on the edge of getting murdered by these robots over and over again. They're just kind of standing there chatting. Yeah. Well, we had like three or four seats where people were like, I could use some help here. And they're like <laughs> having this conversation. I'm like, oh, God. Even just their, their body language, the way they were drawn was like, there's eh, like they're, you know, having a coffee break. Like, I, I punched out, guys. Like, I can't work now. I'm, I'm union thing. So things are still pretty desperate here. They need to get these rescued mutants to the space station while the ship is still available. Hmm. How could they transport a couple dozen mutants a long distance in as short a time as possible? Obviously, it's going to be Nemesis, Heather. She volunteers to teleport them there, even though we know the Nemesis sword is stealing energy from her body every time she uses it. She and Guardian have a touching moment where she essentially tells him to say goodbye to their kid for her. That's kind of sad. But again, this is being well set up all through since issue one. She's going to have this kind of sacrifice kind of moment. So Heather is about to be blasted to hell by the box sentinel before she can accomplish the task, but she gets defended by Feedback, a.k.a. Albert Lewis, a.k.a. Albert Louis, uh, who has his own redemption arc. Remember, he was the guy who we found out left his clone to die off in some factory, but now his power is that he can absorb the sentinel's blast and throw them right back. So this gives Heather enough time to do the teleport, uh, uh, sending both the rescued mutants and the secret Alpha Flight mutants, but only the mutants, off to that station. She then collapses, and the remaining human members of the team, they just stop fighting. They're just arrested on the spot, which I thought was pretty pretty shocking. I thought they were going to, you know, fight and go hide in some Canadian sewers somewhere. I guess that's what <laughs> mutants do, right? But no, they just, you got us. I think they were getting their butts kicked, and especially once Nemesis was down, I think they... We're more concerned about getting her medical treatment than continuing That's a good to fight. Point, yeah, half their their uh, their fighters had just beamed away too, and 
it was never super clear to me exactly how many sentinels there were. There always seemed to be just enough to keep the battle right on the edge. So yeah, that was that was kind of a, an interesting ending. I don't know what Snowbird could have turned into. Maybe some kind of <laughs> Canadian something or other. Some kind of Canadian flock of Canadian geese <laughs> and carried them all away. Yes. Uh, so yeah, so then we see uh, Doiron giving a speech. So we're kind of get you know head right to the wrap up here. We get some more time passing. Unclear exactly how much time, which makes sense because you know when the rest of Fall of X finishes up, we don't want to have to go. Well, that doesn't match up with Alpha Flight. We can be kind of vague and hand-wavy here. Uh, she gives a speech telling the world, hey, guess what? Alpha Flight were traitors. Sorry about that. And they will be standing trial for treason, as will Heather if she ever wakes up from what looks like a coma. So kind of a, a, a downer ending for this. Yeah, downer ending for this group, but it's also very interesting to me. And I, gosh, it, I'm kind of interested to find out what happened to Alpha Flight. <laughs> and I... This is enough to get me to pick up another Alpha Flight story, so I can't believe I'm going to say that. So, really, really good on Brisson to leave enough kind of dangling threads that, you know, it resolved the core story, but I'm really intrigued about how where this would go, right? And there's with this, like, public government announcement about this team being a traitor team, even if they get out of jail, right? Even when Orcus falls, like, what is, what's going to happen with this team? Right. Well, yeah, be public it, it could again? go either way, right? I can't, it all depends on what world opinion does regarding the whole Orcus anti mutant situation, right? If they, if everyone realizes, oh no, Orcus were the bad guys all along, then maybe Alpha Flight, you know, comes off smelling like roses and Doiron is the bad guy. Anti hero Canadians. That's going to be an interesting. <laughs> an interesting I don't think twist. I need a whole like trial of Alpha Flight miniseries. No, no, this was enough. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'm curious what happens to them. So things end happier for all those mutants. They're met on the Alpha Flight space station by Guardian secret contacts. Two more former Alpha Flighters. These are Marina Smallwood, who is that kind of merwoman lady, and Walter Lankowski. Well, kind of. Uh, Walter is going by Walter Sampson right now because he is presently residing the body of Doc Sampson and vice versa due to a Freaky Friday Freaky Friday body swap that happened in Al Ewing's Immortal Hulk run. Did you uh, did you read all the way to the end of that Hulk run? Yeah, I didn't get as far as the body swap, so I was confused by the names here. But nope, they just, they're, they're in each other's bodies and not in a sexy way. Uh, but that aside, the mutants do get the Chandelar. Uh, we get one panel of seeing them kind of, you know, happy there. So that's all we get of it. But again, I don't need a whole epilogue of that they made it to that planet which i'm, I'm kind of surprised i thought that everything on earth was going to resolve one way or another before they actually ended up off world but no they get another thing i'm curious about is what's going to happen to these characters that are on chandelar i can't imagine they're just going to come back to earth like maybe i'm maybe i'm wrong but i just feel like that's not going to be a focal point of of you know this next kind of big into the Krakow era and so i wonder you know Five ten years from now, is somebody going to remember? Oh yeah, there's a kind of refugee mutant population. Feedback is there on uh, on Chandelar. There's other people that's been there, right? Like that have been part of this group. Didn't um, somebody smasher? Isn't that what uh, Sunspot was there? And uh, Cannonball, right? Cannonball, yeah, Cannonball's married there, to one of the Guardians. Is there. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, sometimes we get Chandelar stories. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious what is up with these people that are there. Yeah, so maybe we'll see that in the future. But that's where this book ends and it's, it's a pretty cool story i i like that it it really fits into what's going on in fall of x it is very much tied to that it's not like uh like realm of x which was just a random story that could have taken place 
any time. You just needed to beam this group off to a fantasy world. But this is is you know really part of this overall story. But you can see how it's happening in a different location, different culture, different enemies, but kind of similar enough. I thought it was a a really nice choice. No, I thought it ended up being really cool. So I think I've been very kind of lukewarm on this series for four issues. And, you know, I, I don't think I've ever, I think the first few issues, I was like, God, oh, it sucks. And then maybe by issue three, I was like, yeah, there's some stuff here. This is kind of interesting. Uh, but it just got better as the series went on for me. And, um, you know, if there's a goal was to introduce Alpha Flight to people that know nothing about it and make it somewhat interesting to them, I'd say mission accomplished. So for me, I'm going to say eight. Uh, this was a pretty solid issue. Uh, yeah, well, let's see. Uh, so for me, let's talk about the art for a second. I, I did make that uh, resolution at way back at the beginning of the year, so I got to keep talking about the art. Uh, again, I think it's really nice. It's very bright primary type colors, uh, very comic booky looking, which I think I, I like with this kind of story with, you know, fighting robots, and that's a very comic booky thing to do. There were two artists. Uh, the second one was David Cutler, who did pages, it says like pages nine to 14 or something. And I went through and I guess now that I know I'm looking for a change, I can see a slight difference, but it, it really blends in very well. If you didn't happen to notice that there were two artists, I don't think anyone would say, oh, hey, why does this page look different? Uh, my only small criticism of the art is that bit where Guardian Northstar could have been drawn a little more actively taking part in the fight when they were having that conversation, but that's a nitpick. Otherwise, great stuff. Uh, comes to a satisfying conclusion. Makes me want to see what happens next. One of the best of the fall of X-Minis, and I'm going to go up to an 8.3 out of 10. So listeners, if you haven't been reading this one in real time, definitely worth picking up when it comes out as a whole, either in trade or when it comes out on the app. It's good stuff. All right, on to our next book, which is Invincible Iron Man number Lucky 13, The Mysterium Marauders, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Juan Fregari, colors by Brian Valenza, letters by Joe Caramagna. Now, I was kind of surprised to see Invincible Iron Man on the list. It comes out only two weeks after issue number 12. So what I think is going on here is that just Jerry Duggan has kind of pieces he needs to put in place before the end of the year, before the start of Fothox Rotpox. So I think he needed to like, squish in an extra issue, which also explains why we had a guest artist, Ig Guerra, on the previous issue, just so that everything could get going in time. So that all makes sense. Uh, and maybe what it, explains why Uncanny Avengers was mediocre. It could be. Maybe he had a little too much on his plate. I think so. Because I have a spoiler on this one. This is my book of the week. And I thought this was like really well done. It's kind of funny that this doesn't have any of the Fall of X trade dress because it's very clear this has been like a core Fall of X book. Oh, I actually, that's never mind. It does. Issues, yeah. I did, it did yeah. it at the beginning. Only when, like, after the gala, they started putting that trade dress just in the corner of the cover, not as big as some other uh, other books, and it's not edited by the the X Office editors, but it is. It does have a little bit of Fall of X on it. Oh, by the way, the next issue is coming out six weeks after issue thirteen, so it was this issue that kind of got bumped up. So I thought this was a decent issue. It's not in my book of the week. There were a few few bits of it that seemed a little bit off. Maybe I didn't quite understand. So. Maybe, maybe, Ruben, you'll clear those up for me, and maybe, maybe yeah, my maybe. score will go up to you. Yep. So there are two kind of strands to this story. Uh, there's a longer one. Most of the issue is about Tony and Emma, and there's a little bit that pops in here and there following Ryu. So we're going to start with Tony and Emma. Tony Stark seems to be just about the only person on Earth actively working in a plan to not just resist Orcus and, and save some mutants, 
but to just overthrow them, defeat them entirely. And to do that, he needs a crap ton of Mysterio. The main action of the issue involves Tony and his wife, Emma, getting their hands on that Mysterio from a vault on Game World. So, Ruben, uh, tell me why I should care about Game World. And tell me why Jerry Duggan <laughs> loves to go back to Game World over and over and over. Yeah, it seems to be his favorite place, right? Yeah, that's where Cordyceps Jones was. That's where the Pog or Pog fight was. Uh, these were, you know, in, in X Men. But yeah, he just he, he loves that location, and I don't. I've never really understood or cared about Game it's World. It's because Howard the Duck likes it, right? He's in one of those pictures. He gets a little cameo. He does. Yeah, <laughs> he's at the gambling place. I, I don't really get it. Maybe just because it's a it's a place out in space where you can just draw a bunch of aliens. I think funky. it's that. It's a place where there's going to be a lot of money around because it's a casino type situation. So anywhere you need to go somewhere spacey and maybe have a bunch of money to steal, I think that that probably explains a lot. So I did like the bit early on where Tony and Emma hire Skrulls to impersonate them and keep up appearances back on Earth. But then when they get to Game World, they don't even disguise themselves. So I, I guess there's not a lot of people on Earth knowing because they, they're in two places. So I guess if anybody was going back and forth, I get it, but I just don't think people on Game World are talking to people on Earth. They're definitely not spilling the beans about Orcus to Orcus, right? And I'm, I'm wondering how long they thought they were going to be gone that they needed to have stand-ins on Earth. That they need to be photographed every day? I, it, it was fun enough having the scrolls. It just didn't seem... I didn't see why it was necessary. So they also team up, and they team up with Star Fox. Uh, nice to see him. First time he's appeared since the end of Judgment Day. When I say nice to see him, I mean that in the like colloquial sense, not nice to look at because isn't he supposed to be like super attractive because he is been beaten with the ugly stick here. My God, he looks like he looks like <laughs> Harvey Firestein. Uh, no offense to any Harvey Firestein fans out there, but that's not how I would picture, you know, Mr. Attraction Eros himself, Star Fox. He, uh, he has like that weird androgynous thing. I mean, sometimes he's supposed to be super attractive, but I always thought it was more like his power makes him attractive to people, not so much that he himself is attractive. I get the androgynous thing, but he's not like like David Bowie androgynous. He's like, I don't want to say Harry Firestein again, but you yeah. know, it's I think he like, is supposed different people to be have Bo different tastes, I guess. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be Bowie style, but the art is not serving him well. Oh, fair enough. And actually, Bowie is who I've always kind of imagined is Star Fox. I can definitely see that, yeah. Bowie in like that labyrinth kind of mode. Exactly. Which in that movie I watched that, I was like, I don't understand why this is appealing <laughs> to anybody either. But <laughs> my wife was like, oh, yeah, I loved that movie when I was a kid. And I've heard that from a lot of women, right? And I'm like, okay, whatever. I love the story there where uh, the David Bowie character was doing that contact juggling thing where he had this clear sphere that he was moving around on the top of his hand. But David Bowie couldn't actually get figure out how to do it. So the juggler would stand behind him and put his arms under David Bowie's like armpits oh, and funny. would do the manipulation. I always I love that, that story that's about Labyrinth. But meanwhile, back in Game World, uh, there's going to be a heist on Game World's Mysterium vaults. Now, why is all the Mysterium... I never understood Mysterium, never really understood Game World, so put them together and I'm just confused. There is so much Mysterium here. Is that is that make sense that there would be just a warehouse full of Mysterium here in Game World? It's the mutants collection of Mysterium. I think that what they're saying is they decided after they liberated Game World and it was kind of like they're, you know, they were sort of shadow puppeting it. They they decided to keep their stuff there. So the mutants own this Mysterium, but they can't just write a check or, you know, get it. They have to do a heist? Y yes, because the probably the people that handled that would be like storming them, right? And they're kind of out of the picture. 
okay, I, I could have used like another panel or two of explanation just as to why they had to steal their own Mysterium. Well, just, just a little it's not bit Tony's of Tony's Mysterium, right? I guess you're saying maybe Emma has the right to access it, but I don't just, know. Just, just, I've never understood it. Give me a little bit of explanation. Would, would have made me feel better. I would say also, it's the, it, it's the um, Arako people, right, that were mining it. And Emma's not part of that group, so I, I just don't feel like... on Arako? I thought it was I coming should, no, from they were, No, I don't distance. mean mining it, but they were accessing it. The whole operation to get it out of the White Hot Room was being handled by, like, the X-Men red folks. Okay, we were pretty maybe, much maybe out of the picture at the moment. Maybe, maybe it makes perfect sense. Uh, what I don't think made a lot of sense was this is, like, the economy of whole worlds worth of Mysterium here, right? This is undergirding the entire galactic economy, and it's guarded by, like, six dudes with stun guns. And when they get there, there's a heist already in progress, which, that's awful coincidental. Uh, so... Yeah, they have to, Tony and Emma have to team up to put the smack down on both the guards and the other attempted heisters. It's fine. But again, if this is so, so valuable, there would be more guards. There would be, oh, let's go back to our old favorite. Should there be some cameras here? Maybe some alarm systems? Because once they beat up these, you know, six dudes and these other six dudes, there's no urgency to even get this Mysterium off of Game World. It's like, okay, we won. We can take our time and just get some robots to haul us away whenever we want. I would think there'd be, you know, hundreds and hundreds of guards and robots, you know, bearing down on them to uh, to get get the uh, the crooks. But it's just not what Duggan's interested in in this story. Yeah, that's true. He spent more time, like, making fun of Star Fox and his attempts to um, manipulate Emma and how she wasn't having it at all. Yeah, and then there's a gag where Star Fox shows up dressed like a pregnant lady and there was going to be some sort of part of the heist. Was I, I didn't think that joke worked. That really fell flat for me. <laughs> Well, it's like a caper, right? Like some heist movie. And he apparently they had kind of suggested to him that he needed to use his emotion manipulating powers. Yeah, to, there was going to be, you, to you could it. tell the idea was this really complicated, oh, like comic set piece heist. And then it all gets blown to hell because when they get there, there's already heist in progress. And yeah, I, it, it, it didn't hit me as funny as clearly Duggan thought it was. Yeah, I laughed. I thought it was funny, but I love heist movies. And Fair enough. I also love making fun of uh, Star Fox. So I guess our sense of humor more, was more, more in your wheelhouse. That's yeah. fine. The heist is successful. Tony gets enough Mysterium to make his new suit, the Mark 72, and the rest will be on the way with Riri to the dwarves to make all the, the ships that are going to attack Earth and know, beat up on Orcus. We'll, we'll get to Riri in a second. Uh, this part of the story ends with Tony and Emma being impressed at how well the Skrulls did impersonating them, and they're inspired to go themselves on a skating date to Rockefeller Center. Yeah. Uh, so well, I guess that was really why the Skrulls were here, right? So that Emma and Tony could see that and kind of have this little holiday Christmas couple moment at the end. That seemed to be the actual part. Yeah, well, there's a couple other things here, too, I want to go back on. So okay. when Starbucks is trying to hit on Emma and she's not having it and Tony's getting amused by that. She mentions that she's she can't, her emotions can't be manipulated that way because she's only attracted to like intellect. So it's like, okay, then you're like, oh, maybe there is, you know, an opportunity for these two to connect, right? Because who's smarter than Tony, right? And so, yeah, and then from his perspective, I guess this sort of wholesome skating thing is really something he'd be into. So yeah, I, I like this bit because it's kind of hinting at the possibility of this fake marriage turning into a real relationship down the line, which is probably not going to really happen. But it, it's nice to see that on panel kind of hinted at. I, I buy yeah. that. 
I mean, the way this was all foisted on us, we were just kind of like, this is a ridiculous thing, right? And then it was delivered and it was like, oh, yeah, it's a fake marriage anyway. So you're kind of like, okay. But now it's sort of spinning the other way where it's like, okay, maybe there's something these characters could become romantically entangled, which, like you said, they probably won't. But yeah, if this was like a late 80s, early 90s rom-com where they have to pretend to be married and then they actually start to develop feelings, you know, that would that would work. Yeah, I dig it. So. And that part's cool. And the other thing I want to go back to quickly is they give all the Mysterium to Star Fox. He is such a sus character. Like, I'm like, I do not really think you should be relying on him to do something critical for That's your good point. kind of war effort. So I'm, I'm really I'm like, this plan's all working really good. And I think you're pulling all the right threads, mm. Tony. But I, I get that he's an Avenger, but <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I right. feel like this is the weak I- link of your... That's a good plan. point. I think that just based on where we are in the arc of this story, I don't expect him to do anything that way. Just I don't think there's time for that to happen. But yeah. that's a, a damn good point. I so, can see him getting hijacked, right? Like Thanos is always messing around with Star Fox and you yeah, know, he's gonna sure. be pissed at him because of what happened during the Turtles. Yeah. And anyways, it seems so there's already gonna be some complications on that end because to go over to the Riri part of the story, uh she still has her own Iron Heart suit. She still has the rings of the Mandarin. Uh, those rings are going to end up biting her in the ass eventually, and, and uh, maybe sooner than later. She uses her ring powers to steal an Orca shuttle and heads off into space. I don't know. This was another thing where a word just bugged me. If you call something a shuttle, then that's it goes back and forth short distances. <laughs> but now she ends up in deep space in the shuttle. Yeah, yeah. Just give it a different name. It just bugs yeah. idiots like me who, who you know, pick on things like that, but oh well. Well, yeah, that's totally fine. I, I agree with that, except maybe maybe it's just a comfort level thing, right? <laughs> like this thing, All these spaceships can go wherever, but they don't have a bed <laughs> in the back. Yeah, the whole geography of space in the Marvel Universe is just whatever the writer needs it to be, which is fine. I don't, I don't need it to have weeks and months of travel just, just to make it accurate. This is not hard, hard science fiction. But she gets out there to deep space. And uh, she's out there. She's going to meet up with the Mysterium. Star Fox is sending to her. We don't know the details. That's fine. Again, space is really big. And we've got another big coincidence where she happens to kind of run into, oh, hey, it's Forge. I remember that guy. Uh, his whereabouts have been confusing for a while now, which may be why no writer has wanted to bring him up. I was happy to see him, though, because of that. Because we were like, was he with the White Hot Room group? But then he wasn't. And so I still... This makes this gives me hope that they're going to address that. Explain like where the heck he went. Maybe he went maybe there. they're just going to say, "Oh, he's back now. Don't worry about it." So just just to uh, yeah, recap for people who, who don't remember, we saw him in the gala issue, uh, red triangling like a badass in his party outfit. Right, so he looked like he was sticking around. He was doing that, you know, Professor X can't make me leave thing. And then we saw him in X Men number twenty five having woken up from a daze on this weird mushroom planet on the other side of a now non-functioning Krakoan gate. And in X-Men 25, he's wearing his standard X-Men kind of duds. So it seemed like he'd been like slipped a roofie and gotten there somehow. But how we got between the gala and that location it was never addressed. So I, I, I do hope we eventually find out what the heck happened to him and why. Yeah, I, I think the other thing I'll say here is the... These are little things that make me like this issue probably more than you. So I think I've said repeatedly the characterization of Forge from uh, Duggan is really obnoxious to me. Kind of a meathead, yeah. Yeah. And I think I said at one point, like, that's not the Forge I remember. But he's, he, you know, he's kind of leaning into it here in this issue where he's talking about how, like, nobody really likes him and he can just kind of invent stuff, but he can't really explain how he invents it. I'm like, okay, it's fine, right? It, you've 
you're acknowledging that the characterization is a certain way, and then you're kind of playing off of that. It, it works for me in that sense. Like, I'll just accept that they've changed his personality to be more like this. I'll buy that. It almost seems like he acknowledges that he was kind of playing into one aspect of his personality, which, you know, people do that. And I, I felt kind of, um, I kind of like the part where he's like, hey, you know, I've been gone. What's going on? And then he asks about Storm. That kind of made me happy just see. You know, I don't expect them to have a relationship again, but it's kind of cool that he's checking in on her. For sure. And that's also how he bonds with Riri a little bit. So it turns out that he says, yeah, I was on this planet, uh, but, you know, I've got these I can build anything and anything powers. I don't know how I do it. I just kind of do it. Really annoys the other engineers around because they can't explain why anything works. <laughs> Which, mutant powers, that's fine. Yeah. Uh, so he, he he built himself out of this these mushrooms on this planet, I guess. He built a whole spaceship. Life support, navigation, whole nine yards. Very hand wavy, but I'll buy it. It's fine. But it's forged. I mean, he's always been hand wavy. People just give him ideas, and then he's like, oh, yeah, I can build that. So he and Riri have that little banter about Storm, and then they get attacked by a space dragon. (laughs) So specifically, it's a kind of a creature called a McLuhan. Are you familiar with this race? No, but they gave enough information about this. Apparently, they're related to the... Mandarin rings. Yes. In fact, you do know at least one member of this race because I'm sure you've heard of Fin Fang Fang Foom, indeed. So he's he's like the one McLuhan who's like showing up and has a name and things. So this McLuhan, if I'm even saying that name correctly, this space dragon was drawn to this location by Riri's rings. The Mandarin's rings, uh, canonically, they are stolen McLuhan technology and each of them contains the soul of one of their long-dead space dragon warriors. So you can see why this one might be annoyed that, you know, some some gal from Earth is flying around with 10 space dragons on her fingers. It works. Yeah. Yep. It, it feels odd that Duggan would introduce an antagonist right at this point. And again, just like, uh, maybe this is why I don't think that Star Fox is going to be sus with the Mysterium, because we've already got enough complication going on to make this re plot work. Yeah. So I think we've got this one complication. Maybe it'll be... Maybe it's only here so we have a cool cliffhanger in this issue, and maybe it goes away super fast in the next issue. Well, well what I was what worried about is that Star Fox is going to show up here, and what the hell is he going to do against this giant space dragon? I was like, this <laughs> make, thing's going to take all the Mysterium, and they're, they're screwed. They'll be the new couple. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess definitely so. Definitely see that happening. Yeah. So, yeah, this issue was fun. I enjoyed it. It was nice to see two characters return after long absences, you know, Star Fox and Forge. It's nice to see the plan to fight Orcus taken shape, even if it's kind of weird to see this happening outside the actual X books, right? The whole plan to get Orcus, nobody in the actual X books is, they don't have time for that. They're just kind of trying to stay alive. But Tony's doing it over here on the side. There's a bit, I don't know if you thought this was weird, but Tony talks about his plan, right? He's like, oh yeah, we're going to build these ships to invade Earth from Araco. And I was like, uh... <laughs> Who's going to board those ships, right? They got their own problems. Yeah, I, I like that because, yeah, we we don't know how news of the whole Genesis War has come back to Earth, if there's any communication, anybody knows what's going on, if there's any plans back and forth between Tony and contacts there. It's interesting to think about. And again, we don't know the timing of that either. Is the Genesis War over oh, at this yeah. point? Is it, is I just not wanted to think it was, a, it was a cool, like, hey, he's got this great plan, but he doesn't know what's going on. Yes. So yeah, I don't I, think it was. I don't think it was bad. That was an interesting thing to think about. Oh, how is that all going to work out? How are they going to make this work? Pretty cool. Uh, th- the book looks fantastic. Juan Fergari draws the hell out of these scrolls and aliens and spaceships and battles and Howard the Duck, uh, Emma and her dra- diamond form, the space yeah. dragon. It all looks amazing. 
with that one exception of that homely, homely Star Fox. Everything else, <laughs> maybe that's why he looks so bad in comparison, because everything else looks just so great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the issue does feel a little bit unserious sometimes about the whole heist thing. It's definitely a big goof. It, it feels like if this is really how we're going to overthrow Orcus, it should feel a little more serious. But that's just like a tonal balance thing. And, you know, Tony Stark always has this kind of goofy side to his character. So it was okay. I didn't need homely Star Fox dressing up as a pregnant lady. I thought that was a little bit too far in the goofy direction. But, uh, you know, that aside, I thought he had a good time. I'm going to give this a, oh, I'll, I'll bump it up to a 7.5 out of 10. Nice. Well, I'm glad I got you to go up a little bit. Um, I'm going to go 8.2 on this. 8.2? 8.2, the, the, yeah. The okay. vibe is good for me. I, I thought it was you know, the right level of funny and interesting. And there were a lot of connectivity to other stories past and kind of contemporary that made me happy. I always love when you're like, oh yeah, this little piece, how does that play in, right? It just got me thinking a lot. And um, even the fights were cool. I thought it was kind of cool when um, Emma goes into diamond form and Tony's reflecting, you know, his his beam through her and mm-hmm. she, you know, took yeah, off the that, gloves that so that, that she could shoot scene over in one splash page panel, which was fine. We didn't we didn't need a whole extended fight scene in this issue. So it was just have it done in one cool, splashy art thing, I thought was great. Yeah. And you know I love Eternals, right? So give me an Eternal and <laughs> probably get your point just for doing that. Fair enough. Not my favorite Eternal, but yeah. No, not my favorite, but I, I'm interested in all of them. So yeah. It, it's just a lot of stuff that, that kind of scratches the itches that I have and um, I'm going to be kind of generous and bump it up. But as far as, you know, this is the kind of story where Duggan does well in my mind. Um, and I'm not sure why he, he hasn't written a story that's this engaging for Uncanny Avengers, but um, I'm happy with this one and I'm going to keep going with it. Very good. On to our last book of the show. And this is X-Men number 29, House of Doom. They do love these House of Somebody kind of titles. I think that's kept, popped up a couple times, which, you know, why not? This is written, of course, once again by Jerry Duggan, art by Joshua Cassara, colors by Marte Gracia, letters by Clayton Cowles, designed by Tom Muller and Jay Bowen. So it's time to go to Latveria. Uh, we haven't spent a lot of time in Victor Von Doom's homeland in these X-Books. I think the last time that we've been here, not counting the very end of X-Men 28, was all the way back in Chip Zdarsky's X-Men slash Fantastic Four published back in June of 2020. Now, Ruben, did you read that book, either when it came out or, or since? I don't remember. Probably not. There are some connections to it in this book, so I thought it was, it was pretty cool. That might be my recommended reading for the end. No, I did, actually. I did. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I read that. I read it like very late after it came out. Okay. As yeah, like, this uh, book came out catch up on things. three and a half years ago, so it's a long time. It wasn't too, too memorable, um, but I, I do remember that. I think I was interested in like the whole idea of like Xavier mind wiping Reed and right that that was the famous thing kind of the infamous thing that happened as part of this book the whole is Franklin he's a he's a mutant he's not a mutant he is he isn't Uh, is Xavier really showing that he was not being as a good guy kind of usual surface self because he was willing to take part of Reed Richards memories away yeah so it was and he kind of even taunted him he did yeah. Yeah, it was really a thing where I'm going to do it, I'm going to tell you I'm going to do it, and yeah. you're going to remember that I did it. Yep. Owned. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back in this book, just recently, the X-Men learned via stolen Orcus files that there are some mutants in Latveria who were not pushed through those gates by Professor X's command on Galen, which makes sense, right? There's probably not any gates in Latveria. The Doom wouldn't allow them. So how would the mutants there even 
get out if they wanted to. The X-Men are sure that any mutants in Latveria must be being held there against their will. I'm sure they'd love to be rescued by their genetic brethren. So they send a rescue team of Kitty Pride, Ms. Marvel, and Logan. That is a weird little group. That I mean, you know, Kitty and Logan for sure, but Ms. Marvel, I guess they really want, they're really pushing Ms. Marvel's a mutant now. She's going to be part of this whole thing. Yes. I didn't think she was necessary to this book. She kind of stood out. Send, yeah, I don't think you would send a novice to Latveria, right? Anytime you're dealing with Doom, you got to bring your A-team. And it feels like bringing an un, you know inexperienced combatant with you would just be a, a risk, but... For sure. I didn't know why she was there. So they do end up there, and they're immediately greeted by a group of those mutants and Doom himself. So in this issue, we learn the backstory of the Latvarian mutants. It opens with a flashback that's set all the way back between pages four and five of House of X number six, even copying some dialogue from that issue. I kind of didn't like this because it changes that sort of experience of Xavier kind of broadcasting to the world. Just the, the timing seems weird. You know, we were talking about Alpha Flight, right? Where it felt like there's too much of a conversation between panels. I don't mind the fact that Doom contacted him, but I hate this idea of like Charles starts to have a conversation with the world. Then he has like this long extended conversation with Doom, talks to the people, you know, his he talks to Magneto and uh, Moira and then continues his conversation to the world. I was like, okay. Again, it's Jerry Duggan doing a comedy thing and kind of cramming that comedy thing onto a very serious, like one of the most pivotal scenes in the Krakoan era, right? This is the scene we're always referring back to. And I wish it hadn't started, like, like you say, it seemed like Charles started his, his speech, and then he stops and has this chat with Doom. Maybe yeah, I would have liked it if this about- was all before. I just hate that it was in between the conversation. And it's a cool idea that like Doom is ahead of the game and has kind of created its own fake Cerebro. All that's fine. I just, it's the timing, right? Because it's like, People of Earth, this is Charles Xavier, right? And then, like, what, 15 minutes later, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My own, like, personal retcon here is that Doom's message blocked the very beginning of Charles speaking. Okay. So, he so that nobody on Earth yeah. actually heard that. Okay, that'd be a lot better, right? <laughs> I don't think it, that's really what's intended, but I like it better. So <laughs> that's my headcanon. Okay. So in this little conversation, Doom, who has his own Cerebro helmet, which was very funny, uh, he tells Charles three things. He says, number one, I know what you're up to. Number two, uh, Latveria, yeah, include us out. We're not interested. I want to say and this num- other thing about Doom really quick. Sorry, I'm derailing you, but he's wearing a bathrobe, right? He's sure. got a freaking pocket square in his bathrobe. I mean, it's of totally he does. perfect. He's back to Doom. That's <laughs> like, it's a bathrobe, man. Like, what'd you put a pocket square in there for? But anyways. Because he's classy, Ruben. Don't you have one in your... I'm wearing a bathroom with a pocket square right now. (laughs) Right now, okay. And and also a a Cerebro helmet. That's how I'm speaking to you. (laughs) I I thought we both were. I'm I'm kind of disappointed to find out you're not. (laughs) All right, yeah, sorry. So to go back to my interrupted list, the three things that Doom tells Charles, I know what you're up to, number one. Number two, include us out. And number three, hey, Charles, you're not up to this. You're not, this is not going to work out for you. You can't handle this task you've taken on, which he's right. And Dr. Doom would say that. I really like uh, Duggan's characterization of Doom here. I think Dr. Doom is one of the very best characters in all of Marvel Comics. I love to see him, and I, I think Duggan's doing a good job. Uh, that little joke at the end where Magneto tells Charles, block him and move on, <laughs> I didn't need a Twitter joke here. That was, that was lame. 
dug in. You need an editor who just takes your your lamest jokes out and just says, yeah, we don't need that. It just seems weird for, for Eric to say that. I don't view him as kind of, you know, a Twitter aficionado that knows how to... I don't even know if you would know what Twitter is, right? Like, you don't get time for that. Absolutely. He's too old for that. Yes, that's really yeah. Nice. yeah. So, moving on from that scene, we get a data page. Doom has put together a team of seven mutants. He calls them the Seven Daggers of Latveria. I think I'm saying Latveria and Latvaria. Latvaria. I'm going to pronounce it 18 different ways. It's, you know, with Dr. Doom. Deal with it. So, two of these characters you've actually met previously. These are the twins known here as Iron Cloak and the Dreamer. Uh, Iron Cloak, who is Ramona, she can bestow invulnerability by touch. And the length of time this invulnerability lasts is redacted, possibly so, you know, Duggan doesn't want to tie himself down yet. He can make this whatever it needs to be at a later date. The Dreamer, who is Hugo, he can, quote, enter dreams. Not the most useful in battle, maybe, but great for, you know, information acquisition. So Doom likes that. These twins first appeared in that Ship Zdarsky X-Men Fantastic Four book very briefly, where we learn that they once tried to run away from Latveria, but then they changed their minds and went back. And it helps because there wasn't a lot that happened in that series. There's a lot of issues. and It's sort of like making Empire better, which I think Ewing has done, you know, post-Empire. But this helps me feel good about having read that crossover, which at the time I was like, okay, it's like five or six issues just for kind of a one line. Yeah, helps the universe feel connected, which I always enjoy. Yeah. Uh, three of these seven daggers we meet here for the first time. These are Nerium, who has plant powers, possibly tied specifically to Latveria the way that Snowbird's powers are tied to Canada, maybe. We have Slag, who is the tank of the group, big, strong, bald guy. He's kind of like uh, ben Grimm, but only arms and legs, and still kind of molten. And we have Volta Doom, who is electrical zappy zap type powers. Uh, two of the daggers we don't get to meet, we don't even learn their names or what their powers are. All we're told is that, yeah, they exist, not yet ready for prime time. Again, feels like Duggan just kind of, you know, keeping his options open for down the line. He can make these characters whatever they want to be, or some other writer can. Each of these five gets their own personal flashback later in the book, where we see how they're recruited, why they're so loyal to Doom. Basically, he takes care of them. He gives them a home and a purpose, helps them control their, their mutant powers, which we know can be scary, and they remain loyal to Doom 100%, even when the mutants say, hey, we're here to rescue you. We're here to liberate you. They're like, we're not interested, which I thought was a really interesting way to go. I'm going to be bold and slightly political here and say that this issue kind of interrogates the concept of identity with more nuance and more critical thinking than all of last week's identity books put together. These two groups, the X-Men and the Daggers, they both have this concept of identity that makes sense to them, but completely at odds with each other. They can barely understand the words the other side is saying, and I think that's really interesting. What did you think of that? Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, I always appreciate the idea of these characters having kind of just distinct personalities and distinct understandings of like what heroism is and yeah, very different you know, who's in the right. So very interesting. Yeah, good stuff. So uh, the first two thirds of this issue are, are filled with those backstories and a fight between those groups. And it's a pretty cool fight. Uh, the five new characters are just kind of, they're here all at once, but they don't feel like throwaway characters. There's a weight and a texture that makes me like believe these characters, oh, they've been around. I didn't know about them, but they feel like they've been around, and they feel like they're going to be around in the future. And I, that's not easy to do with a bunch of new characters. So again, credit to Duggan. Oh, we learn Ms. Marvel's mutant power during this fight. Did you see that? 
No, she can identify vibranium by closing one eye and making a funny face. That's her mutant <laughs> power, Ruben. There it is. Okay, maybe not. Maybe it's just Duggan continuing to write her in an annoying way. I, I give him credit where I, you know, for Doom and for these daggers. Um, maybe it's just Ms. Marvel is hard to write. Maybe it's, she doesn't belong in this book. But just just erase her from every panel, and this book gets better. That is weird. How, why how does she why just does know, she know oh, that? Why does she know what what uh, what uh, vibranium looks like? And and Logan doesn't, <laughs> and Kitty Pride doesn't. But oh, Ms. Marvel, the the teenager from Jersey City, she knows yeah. all about vibranium. Yeah, good point. Oh. That's so weird. I think she had. She, Somebody needed to say it's vibranium. She had nothing else to do. They make her do her stretchy thing and, and grab that special spear at one point. That was all right, but yeah, that was it. Uh, they the could have just had Logan try to cut the staff and then realize it didn't work, and then be like, "Oh, it must be vibranium." But that that would have worked too. Made a lot more sense. So the X Men finally give up on trying to rescue these mutants who don't want to be rescued. Uh, they get rewarded with a dinner at Shea Doom. Quite a feast. Even a halal meal from his marvel, which makes Kamala feel both grateful and kind of scared that Doctor Doom knows so much about her. And that was a nice touch. I thought that was good. Uh, yeah, again, more, more like, about Doom than than uh, Ms. Marvel, but yeah, yeah, it's a great it's a great Doom moment where he's basically like just kind of showing off that he knows everybody in his kind of egotistical ways. Yeah, and also and he, he is a gracious his- host in his own mind. And oh, now that I'm a host. This is how I need to behave to like live up to my own dignity. Well, it's just a cocky move too. be like, you came to attack me. Let's have dinner. Like, I don't fear you in any <laughs> way flex. at all, right? Big I was flex. like, good job, dude. You're flexing like a boss. I also like how uh, Kate here interacts with Doom. They have quite a history together. She can talk to him like nobody else would dare to talk to him. She just like, just says stuff, you know, what's going on here? What's, what's up with this Doom? And that relationship dates back to the original 1980s X-Men versus Fantastic Four miniseries by Chris Claremont. And that story, uh, Kitty had been hurt in the mutant massacre, got zapped by some energy weapon thing. She was, you know, she can go intangible. She was like fading all the way out of existence. And eventually, Doom and Reed Richards had to work together to save her. So that's why her relationship with Doom is just different than anybody else's. Good stuff. Uh, Kate asks Doomsie, you know, hey, if you're so smart, you know, you've predicted all this, so tell us what happens next. And he doesn't give a straightforward answer, but what he says is a little scary. Uh, He prophesizes that Xavier, whom he calls the last Krakoan, very cool, will either, quote, destroy himself or emerge as a much more interesting person. That doesn't, it doesn't really say anything, but it also makes you go, hmm, what does that mean? <laughs> I, as, as prophecies go, I thought it was all right. No, it's a good, and it's good foreshadowing, like with the sinister Xavier kind of shared mind, right? Like it kind of makes you think, oh no, is there going to be something that happens with all that? For sure. Now, so this issue's big fight didn't have all that much of an outcome. Uh, the daggers, they don't want to go back to the sewers with the X-Men. They'd rather stay in the castle here in Latveria. Yeah, and eat feast. I don't blame them. <laughs> Volta invites the X-Men to, hey, maybe you should just stay here with us. And they get a not-so-polite no thanks from Logan. But it does seem that there's a little bit of a connection here, right? If push comes to shove, uh, the daggers and Doom might be willing to help in the fight against Orcus, who is, after all, their mutual enemy. So that seems like some good foreshadowing. I'd, I'd bet my last Mysterium bar that... Somewhere in the big fight against Orcus, when the ships of Mysterium come, we're going to get a couple panels at least of these daggers doing their bit. One thing that kind of irks me about all this, not that I expected this to show up in this issue, but at the end of the last Annihilation storyline that was through Guardians, 
Doom, you know, because he was briefly part of the Guardians, he, like, used his affiliation to absorb, like, all this mystic energy from Dormammu into his armor. And I just need to see that, <laughs> like, brought back up again. I feel like everybody has forgotten that he has that. But I think he's a lot more powerful even now than people think. I mean, I know people write Doom as having different levels of power, but yeah, when they're talking about... Ways, some ways he's very much into the magical side. Sometimes he's very much into the intellectual science side. Sometimes he's just more of a, a imperial ruler type guy, like in this issue. But yeah, that'd be fun but to with see. But with the X-Men are like, oh, their orcas going to come for you, Doom, and like you can't stand alone. I'm like, I kind of think he can, right? Because like I said, he's got this like kind of world-ending, universe-ending power that he stole from Dormammu into his armor, but maybe he just doesn't want to use it or doesn't want yeah, to let well, them know that he can handle it. But I felt, all I felt about like it was weird. protecting his own. He thinks he has a certain duty to this one little country. And he thinks, well, if I just kind of effectively build a wall around this country, take care of me and my people, that's what Doom should do. And again, every once in a while, he decides to take over the world, hasn't done that for a while. Now he's more focused on his own own thing in recent decades. So we get one final scene where the X-Men leave the opulent, if creepy, cat halls of Castle Doom, head back to their sewer, sweet sewer. And when they get there, uh, uh-oh, what do they find? The place is wrecked. It's trashed. There's blood, I think it's blood, and there's also green goop everywhere. Uh, what do you think that green goop is? Any any idea? I'm not sure who has green green blood. I It must be foreshadowing something. I do hope when we find out what happens, we'll go, oh yeah, that's what the green stuff was. I hope it wasn't just a color, colorist decided, oh, I've used too much red, I need to put in some green. I hope it means something, because there's definitely a, there's a huge lot of... pool of what looks like blood, and yeah. then you know green splotches all over the walls. There's kind of a lake of blood, which is wild, and no bodies, so I don't understand what that means. That's our cliffhanger. It looks it looks like uh, another massacre there in the Morlock Tunnels, which, you know, is a thing that happens. Um, we, we, uh, we get an editor's note that says, next, fall of the House of X, which is coming in just a couple of weeks, and the note continues, then find out where Sink and Talon went in X-Men number four. So it's kind of giving away that Sink and Talon aren't actually murdered to death here, which, fair enough, but... It does kind of kind of take away from the cliffhanger a little bit, I thought. And then we get the final, final page being a data page, an Orcus memo from Dr. Stasis announcing their plan to hold Cyclops' show trial in Paris, France. He says, maybe we should have gone to Paris, Texas for the death penalty, but nah, we'll go with France. Which, maybe not necessary, but does remind the reader of things going on in other books. Uh, that was something happening in the X-Men title, so it makes sense to have it here. And again, ties things back to, oh yeah, there's a, another ticking clock. Things are happening with Cyclops, and remind us we're going to get back to him sooner than later. So yeah, a pretty cool book. Uh, I, I loved learning what has been going on in Latveria during all the ups and downs and further downs of Krakoa. Nice reminder that the Marvel world is a big, complicated place. And I'm just a sucker for a good doomsday story. I think Duggan writes a really good Doctor Doom. Uh, Doom is always completely sure he's the smartest guy in any room. He's usually right. He always has a plan. He always thinks he's acting in the best interest of his people, and he's sometimes right about that. He's, again, one of the very best Marvel characters, and, and Duggan does a great job with it. Joshua Kassara's art is amazing. All three books this week look great. This has got to be my favorite. I think my favorite single page in the book is page seven, where we see the daggers at week one, month one, and year one of their training. Same people, same poses, but just small changes in the way they're dressed. And the way they carry themselves, that yeah, just body language wordlessly yep. tells the story of how they've matured, 
come together as a team. That is a, I mean, I, I love how that's a thing that comics can do in a comic book kind of way that just subtly tells the reader so much and doesn't need to have any words. Really great, great, sh- great shot. Did you like that page too? Yep, absolutely. So a fun issue shows us a part of the Marvel world we haven't gotten to see in a while. It has real consequences for the larger mutant story and, and not just the cliffhanger, but also this dagger team. A couple funny, in quotes, lines they could have done without. <laughs> Overall, my favorite book of the week. Uh, give this an 8.5 out of 10 and a hail do. Yeah, I, I thought it was a very good issue. So I'm just going to give it another 8 too. Um, I didn't think it was perfect. There were some parts where it's kind of like, hey, we're just going to take this new team and beat up on some strong mutants to make this new team seem formidable, which it's kind of, I guess that's what you do, but it's sort of annoying. It's kind but, of a cliche. Yeah, but but the stuff with Doom is good. And like you said, I enjoyed the idea of Latverians identifying more as Latverian than mutants, right? Even though they yeah. do have a shared I, I background. I think having the team lose physically that way was a nice connection to how they're just, their mindset was all wrong, right? They thought, oh, we're going to go in here. We're going to be greeted as heroes. They're going to want to come back to us. And yeah. just being so wrong about what the other people wanted means, oh yeah, they're also going to get their butts kicked physically. I thought that I thought that worked. Yeah, the art was badass though. So for sure, like good job on the art there. Um, and yeah, the I, new I, character I, designs are, are cool for the new uh, Latvian mutants. And this was a very strong issue, right? Like I think fair, you could very easily say this is the book of the week, but I enjoyed the <laughs> I enjoyed the uh, Iron Man one just a little bit more for. Maybe I think part of that reasons. is, you know, you like uh, Eros, Star Fox more than I do, and I think I probably like Doctor Doom even a little more than you do. Oh yeah, you definitely like him more than me. I think he's interesting, but I, he's not one of my favorite characters in the MCU. But it was written well, right? I thought it was cool, and I was really happy to read this issue, so more issues like this. I would love that. Yeah, it was a, a really strong week, and we hope that continues, because next week, we have two endings. We have X-Men Red, number 18. The finale of that series and, you know, see what happens with the whole Genesis War. I, I, it feels like it's been a long time since the previous X-Men read. Maybe it just slipped out of my mind. I'm going to have to go back and reread that. But, you know, see what Al Ewing has to do to, to finish up his, you know, extended, his own part of this Marvel Universe. I guess it's not really finishing because the death, the resurrection of Magneto is kind of going to be a continuation of X-Men Red, it feels like, in a way. We'll see how much of a conclusion we really get. And All then we have to do is uh, bring back Abigail Brand as the savior. And I oh, will give it a yeah, 10 out of 10. I need to see Abby. I just need to see her show up and <laughs> save the day. I doubt she's going to be in it, but. Oh, yeah. I she's almost like hope. Forge, right? Where oh, she's just been tucked away in a corner somewhere. And she's got to come back at some point. I, I hope it's this issue. I look forward to that. I'll, I'm going to be disappointed if she's not in the issue now. Yeah. Uh, and then the other book is Dark X Men number five. The finale of that series and Dark X Men hasn't been our very favorite of the Fall yeah. of X miniseries, but it's been growing on us, I think. And uh, I want to see what happens with Azazel. He's been having it that shows- thing go on, and he's also, you know, is he going to learn that Nightcrawler isn't his actual kid? Is that going to come up in the series? Yeah, it's showing some promise. I'm actually, I agree with you. It's not the strongest issue, but they're. You know, as they narrowed it down with a fewer, like a smaller cast for this team, I started caring more about it. And I'm interested to see what's going to happen to Alex, right? He's been kind of falling apart. And it's that going to affect Madeline. And I guess we're going to get the, the final uh, Goblin Queen versus Madeline showdown, which I guess I don't care so much about that, but at least it'll be resolved. So Yeah, I, I think like you, I'm more interested in the side stories in this book rather than that main that main thrust. But some good stuff there. So I do have some recommended reading. 
I, I could talk about either of those X-Men Fantastic Four series, either the 1980s one with Chris Claremont or the one from 2020 by uh, Chip Zdarsky, both pretty good. But I'm going to suggest going to Alpha Flight Volume 1, Number 30, starting there, and that's where you can start to read what happened with Roger Box Sr. and Lionel Jeffries and all that stuff. This is an era when the book was being written by Bill Mantlow and drawn by some guy named, uh, I think it's Mike McNola. Is that how you say that? Oh, yeah. So, awesome. So, yeah, it's it's definitely worth a look. Those are some some talented creators and telling a cool story. And so I was about to say, nah, no thanks. But I didn't know he did that. That's cool. I love McNola. Alpha Flight, Volume 1, Number 30. Check that out. Cool. Uh, and uh, until then, Ruben, what else might our loyal listeners do with their time? Yeah, read more X-Men comics. <laughs>